The Movie Morgue podcast is made possible through the support of our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you're looking for ways to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash jessicaonmain. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it will haunt you. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore. And I'm your co-host and producer, Annie. And today, we're angry. Very uh, Maleficent, angry. Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, the 2019, how do I say this? Washim? Joshim? I don't know how to say it. I Ronin. think it's probably I don't know him. how it's to say fine. this guy's name. It's fine. Um, but yeah, the sequel to Maleficent. Yeah. Which was, uh, yeah, okay, let's get right into this. For context, I really like the original Maleficent. Oh, I did too. I thought it was the only good version of whatever they're doing with this live action remake <laughs> bullshit. It was the only one with even half of anything to say. And honestly, I don't think I expected much of this, but I expected better. That's that's where I think I'm going to leave off here. And I think that's really fair. You know, I was pretty excited to see this one. I saw the first Maleficent movie in theaters, and it was a movie that I not only really enjoyed, but also got me through some kind of hard times. And so I just had these really good memories of that first film. So naturally, I was kind of excited. I also thought that they had this really great cast. And so when you have a cast of with people like Angie Jolie, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sam Riley, Robert Lindsay, um, and of course, uh, Elle Fanning, how could you mess that up? And uh, we got our answer to that, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So let's start with just the review portion, because um, I gave this one an F. Yeah, up. absolutely. This is unacceptable. Uh-huh. This is, and not only in the, like, because sure, you know, we're kind of lefty scum here. We wear <laughs> our hearts on our sleeves. But yeah. at the same time, the, it's kind of okay until you get to the end, which is so... Like, I'll be polemic here, but the message that you come out of this with is that I'll, well, I'll, I'll say it for a second. But the message you come out with at the end is just disgusting, straight up. Like, mm-hmm. this is something that you should not show to adults without, like, you know, a political science degree, <laughs> let alone <laughs> fucking children. Wow. This is disgusting. Mm-hmm. This honestly hurts me. Mm-hmm. How about you, Annie? What do you give this one? This one gets a return to sender from me. It doesn't deserve a grade. Uh, Maleficent Mistress of Evil is a film that's supposed to help children to grapple with what you do when adults do horrific things, in this case, an attempted genocide. By the end of the film, the viewer is effectively sent the message that the people who were complicit in perpetrating the genocide are not deserving of any sort of punishment or even really being held to account in any way. The main perpetrator is also turned into a joke. On top of this, the film kind of reinscribes some really problematic tropes, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes. But when we say that this film was really bad and that you probably shouldn't take your kid to it, we honestly mean that in this case. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that in some pretty frank terms this episode. Yeah. So, okay, technical fucking, like, mechanics or whatever, 
the effects are nice. You can cut a che- you could cut an apple on Angelina Jolie's cheek. She's lovely, but this movie is disgusting. That's that's it. That that's my only positive notes. Yeah, I think kind of in the same way that Avatar was what, an astounding film to watch. Maleficent Mistress of Evil is one of Disney's more aesthetically pleasing live action films. Like it is beautifully designed. Um, but it's a question of the content and whether audiences are going to be talking about that, which mm-hmm. they might. Okay, cool. So, uh, straight into deep cuts, because the final, the like, if you were to consider this an Aesop, uh, the moral of this story is genocide is only from bad leaders. No one's responsible for it. You know? That, that, that's it. That's the entire message is, oopsie, whoopsie, we did a little genocide, but I'm sorry, the bad lady is gone now. We friends? That's the whole thing. That's the whole fucking thing. Well, and I mean, the latter third of the movie could really be summarized through the argument, we were just following like, orders, so therefore we are not culpable. When your movie is taking pointers from the Nazis' legal defense of their actions in World War II, that's not a good thing. Yeah, by the way, what does this say about us as filmgoers where I come out of this movie, I text you, I'm like, oopsie whoopsie genocide, and that's your, okay, we got to do this, we got to talk about that, I need to see this movie and be angry. I mean, you didn't text me that. What happened to the joy in our life, Annie? uh, I think uh, interacting with people teaches us a lot about how we get our ideas about politics and a lot of that is informed by popular culture so that's why we talk about Mm. this okay (laughs) okay here's here's my question for you if this film were a democratic primary candidate oh no no (laughs) no absolutely not And I don't even think you can boil this down to, like, one candidate, right? Because really what this is is a representation of what the center of the political spectrum thinks is going on and is going to happen. They want a return to, quote-unquote, normalcy, civility, yada yada, right? So You know what? That is fair. That is absolutely fair. But it's also just the entire DNC platform of, you know, like, once we get rid of Michelle Pfeiffer, everything's going to be fine. Oh, yeah. And by writing this effectively as this kind of medieval monarchic fairy tale, you're able to place all of the evil, all of the hatred into a single contained body. It's not a hatred that is part of a population, because then they would have to deal with that, and that work is difficult and messy. And I'd say this is part of U.S. politics writ large, really. Anyways, um, so 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 what 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 do the uh, fairy genociders get? Do they get the thin iron line? Is that what they get? I guess so. I'm like, not Like that's even the thing sure. that upsets me is that there's, there's such nothing. an infrastructure for this genocide. Like it's yeah. so transparently there. It's not like she had like one secret potion master and they're like her assistant. Mm-hmm. No, she, there. It was, this was industrialized genocide. Yes, it is. It is. But the film doesn't focus on that, right? The story that it's telling us uses the genocide more as a provocation. It's the incentive that brings a group of empowered and arguably benevolent individuals together 
who will then wrest the seat of power away from the bad actor who has supposedly corrupted what this idea of civilization and nation and belonging are supposed to look like. This movie is U.S. politics writ large. That is a major idea that's part of the American mainstream, and it's not necessarily limited to political parties. Um, it's part of the way that Americans think about themselves. Yeah, I'm just like... Mm. I mean, you can actually look at the kind of like civility politics angle of things and look at uh, the king, I've already, King John, played by Robert Lindsay, um, because his whole thing is like, Look, uh, I'm just an idealist who wants peace. And uh, my son, wear the sword so you'll never have it. Because actually dismantling institutions of power and violence would make us weak. We just have them so we never need them. Also, I got fucking dominated by a bad faith actor because of course I fucking did. <laughs> but it's okay because my vision worked out at the end. Yeah, and let's talk about Lindsay's character a little bit more. So Robert Lindsay plays the king who is really kind of this idealized representation of a hope for a return to civility, to the old norms, to stability and peace. Um, Lindsay's character is very much against fighting at the dinner table, um, uh, is against weapons, but still has them just in case a fight starts and enjoys having his portrait painted with his wife in the background. Um, the king is really sort of a trope in the popular imagining of what a good American president should look like. He resembles a character from the West Wing more than he does really any of the American presidents of the past, even those considered to be the sort of like beacons of a supposed liberal progressive order like FDR or JFK or uh, the Clinton or Obama administration. Um, so he's really kind of a trope in many senses, a trope of civility. Honestly, if I had to read the kind of authorial intention here, and let me see who wrote this real fast. Uh, Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah yeah, Harpster. the two screenwriters from the okay, first movie. Okay, I'm not familiar with their work, except for the first movie, mm. which was way better than this. Yeah. So um, I feel like he's supposed to be played straight. Like, he is just actually an idealist, and it's only because of bad faith actors and Russian bots that, you know, the Queen Man should do what she did. Also, what was the deal with Jen Murray, like, being orgasmic at the fucking murder organ? That was really weird. Well, it's supposed to be weird and very discomforting, right? She joins the ranks of people like Vincent Price or Captain Nemo or Nosferatu or Dracula who play an organ while people suffer or go mad, right? So she's rendered monstrous through taking pleasure in other people's pain and suffering and death. Um, and that's supposed to be the point of that scene. I think it's supposed to really kind of outrage the viewer, which it fairly does. But then she falls off a balcony, um, which isn't not very much yeah, to she say didn't fall there. Off a balcony, but like that's a one-story fall. I f I feel like she didn't get nothing. Yeah, but this film is very risk averse to meeting out any sort of punishment or you know do justice to people for their actions. And that's again yeah, and disturbing. They're, they're all kind of laughing about it. Like, yeah. this is the, it this is the thing that's fucked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the thing that's fucked up is, first of all, um, 
by any measure of any kind of, you know, Geneva Convention or whatever, mm-hmm. that's a targeted bioweapon. That's yep. bad. It's also, you know, fucking grave robbing. But... Oh, no, not just grave robbing. They destroy a cultural heritage site, right? They destroy this burial site. They also steal fairies and other creatures to conduct experiments on them while they're living. Like, this is a litany of evils, what they've done in this movie. It is a long list of terrible things. Not not only that, like, it's... These are not weapons of war, so to speak. These are like these are weapons specifically of genocide used yeah. to give the most horrible deaths. Yes. Like in, in these kind of metaphorical things. You see what happens to the normal fairies is they turn into like whatever mundane natural object or creature they were originally. It destroys their identity. Um and with the Dark Fae, it reduces them to like particles these are like some of the most horrific weapons i've ever seen in like any movie let alone a children's movie and everyone's just like okay cool the queen's gone we're all at peace now and i'm trying to remember what the what the name of the guy is um who's the guy with the gazelle horns oh are you talking about chewetel Ejiofor or ed scrain i think it's ed scrain yeah sorry I'm, I'm looking at the um the uh I'm talking about yeah the the Bora imdb is not connell connell's the guy Bora, who dies Bora. In her arms. i'm talking about okay. bora yeah because like i'm fucking with bora on this one but he's just like okay i saw that one guy not kill a guy so i'm fine with all the injustice now yeah i mean bora is really kind of a character that is civil society's vision of militant leftists and anti-fascists as uncivilized and over emotional Um, There are a lot of tropes being used in there to present him as, you know, essentially being too emotional over all the things that have happened to him. Once that emotion is displaced, once he is shown the right way, he then reabsorbs back into civilization and reacclimates to the rules and norms. So once he's been shown white nobility, he's like, oh, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. Okay, let's let's talk about the dark fate. Yeah. Oh, boy, that's a mess. It's a disaster. First of all, really beautiful execution in terms of production design. Like, they're really cool to look at. But then, like, yeah, it's, 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 Annie, can you just talk about Noble Savages? Because, like, I don't feel like I have the proper grounding to really get into this in depth. Okay, sure. And I'll also leave some links for our listeners in the show notes in case they're interested in learning more about this, because this is going to be a summary of what this trope is. So the noble savage is a racist stereotype created by white settlers. It is a racist stereotype against Native Americans, which presents them as being romanticized, Uh, ennobled warriors whose ways of life are passing away because they're not as intellectually or technologically or emotionally as advanced as white people. This white supremacist stereotype was used to justify everything from the cultural genocide of Native Americans in indigenous boarding schools to the Indian Removal Acts and the placement of Native Americans on reservations to westward expansion itself. Uh, 
Yet it's also a trope that didn't stay in the 1800s. It pervades virtually all forms of American popular culture, and it continues with us today in the 21st century. We can see it in this movie through the way the Dark Elves are presented as being overly emotional, warlike, a people displaced from their original homeland and forced to rebuild in a secluded area with limited access to resources. They're also presented using things that are distinctive language in film for Native Americans, such as war paint and war whoops um, on their way to battle. Even more disturbingly, in the ending, the Dark Elves effectively are assimilated into this larger group of people, and Bora's actions suggest a kind of mental assimilation into the group as well. There's lots more to think about in terms of how this trope plays out in the movie, but those are the main things that I can think of for the moment. Yeah, okay, so there's a couple things that come out of this. Uh, one is that you, you run into the same problem we've run into with Bright, where they uh, by, by making certain decisions in the production design and the visual design of these characters and these groups, they have drawn very, very obvious parallels to real-world marginalized peoples. But at the same time, in this movie, each one is worth... A hundred mortal soldiers. So you can't have it both ways. You cannot have this be an oppressed people with like real life anal analogies. And you cannot have them be literally more dangerous than people. Because that is like racist trope 101. And it's really fucked. The fact that this film takes a strong stance against genocide or what it thinks is a strong stance while also using genocidal tropes of Native Americans as noble savages, I think, speaks volumes, unfortunately. This trope, as I said, is something that is so deeply interwoven into American popular culture that it is largely invisible to most audiences. Um, and it's partly invisible to audiences because of the education system, but also partly invisible because the United States and Canada and Australia actually refuse to acknowledge the UN's definition of genocide and cultural genocide because doing so would mean that all three countries would have to acknowledge that what they did to First Nations peoples over the past 400 years constituted genocide, which would mean there would have to be consequences. So the way that we teach people history here is effectively that all of that stuff is in the past and there doesn't actually need to be any consequences. And so I read this, unfortunately, as an extension of a mindset that already exists in which the past stays in the past. And therefore, there are no consequences necessary for past actions because they have no implications in the present. It's a kind of willful forgetfulness. Yeah, I'm just like... Ugh. And like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly upset also for... Like, one more thing is I'm actually really upset that they went for the whole, like, under the mountain, like, here's our different biomes thing. Because first of all, that's basically a Minecraft level. But second of all, like, the initial setting where she wakes up and she's in this, um, like ethereal ghostly lit nest that set is incredible yeah that 
It's amazing. And then it's like, okay, and here's our desert zone, and here's our jungle zone. It's set up very much like either a video game, as you pointed out, or a theme park, where it's this kind of ethnographic spectacle, like yeah, Avatar. That, I, that's, that set is so beautiful, though. It is. Um, but, Let's yeah. talk about Maleficent for a second, because she is kind of, you know, the titular character here. Sure. And um, there's a lot going on with her. Um... Because one of the things I... Actually, I, I, I do have a more general direction to go with this is... I think the first one got a lot of credit for being like this kind of like feminist film. Mm-hmm. Because it specifically dealt with kind of like rape trauma. Yeah. And like an aggrieved woman. And it was reframing a lot of things. You had, you know, like this basically sexual predator as a patriarchal king. It's all very, you know, metaphorical and um, kind of representative of a lot of things. In this one, I feel like people are going to say that and it's going to be based on absolutely nothing. People are going to say that and it's going to be an advertisement. I mean... Not a substantive reading. Aurora is... What? What What? What, what, is, what are her big feminist qualities? Is like, okay, cool. Um, she's in love with a man and also she doesn't want to do a genocide. Congratulations. Here's a um, you've got, you know, uh, Gerda, played by Jen Murray, who is, I guess, you know, more female prison guards. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that this movie is white feminism distilled and perfectly packaged to a new generation of moviegoers who may think of themselves as socially conscious. Um a lot of the stuff that we've talked about as well reminds me of so many of the critiques of the women's liberation movement by black and Latinx and queer feminists during the 1970s who critiqued the women's liberation movement for its white feminism um, and for its telling of stories that revolved around white women characters with access to institutional power. That's what we're seeing here and that's what people mean when they say feminism and marketing in Hollywood. And that's really terrible. I, and I, the big one that we come back to is Maleficent played by Angelina Jolie. And in the first film, it was this kind of like tour de force of like, first of all, like her being the big star is like metatextually, but like, you can't ignore that is that she is huge. You know, she is that movie. And she chose to make this about vulnerability and about facing issues that really affect women that are not discussed in mainstream media. In this movie, she is betrayed and then kind of basically has this weird metaphorical love triangle with Bora and Connell. It's really fucking weird. And then she has to sacrifice herself for her child, but also it's completely meaningless. Yeah, there's a ton of just absolutely meaningless stuff in the screenplay because they're trying to tell a story about women reacting to the rise of authoritarianism, but they also don't have any faith in their audience, so they don't treat that material seriously. So these movies are essentially being marketed to like a swath of teenage and college-aged women who read YA novels like romance, like fairy tales, all that stuff. But there's 
no real belief there that these women engage seriously with these topics, which is really interesting because a ton of YA novels have done just that, particularly engaging with topics like genocide and concentration camps and the apocalypse in meaningful ways. I guess the one good thing about this movie is that moment where the Black Phoenix pops out. Not only is the Phoenix a really interesting metaphor visually, I think that the design for the Phoenix is really pretty remarkable as well. It's very weighty. That was pretty dope. That was pretty dope. A Black Phoenix is pretty fucking dope. And honestly, here's, here's, here's my thing. I would have given that the tiniest goddamn piece of respect if she stayed a fucking phoenix. Yeah, I mean, I think the decision there was probably calculated based on having a third movie. They probably just assumed that audiences would think that the franchise was over if she remained a phoenix, which, yeah. again, not very much faith in their okay. viewers. Um, and then we also, I think, we need to talk about Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, because she's kind of the worst thing about this movie. And I don't think she necessarily did a bad job. It's just what this movie wanted her to be. Yeah. Um, because she sends this double message. One is that, you know, you know, racism comes from bite part. That's literally the message is that the distrust of Maleficent and, you know, xenophobia towards fairy people comes from a single deliberate actor or, you know, a small group of deliberate actors, right? Um, and the second thing that she represents is that once the leader is gone, that, you know, society is naturally fine and it's just about removing el presidente. You know, <laughs> it's it's fucked. Yeah, it is. But, um, so Annie, I actually asked you to keep an eye out for something because I'm not seeing this movie more than once. I'm not giving them more than one fucking ticket. <laughs> um, but um, what was up with her vocal performance? Did anyone else do that as well? Because... No, Michelle Pfeiffer's vocal performance in this is highly performative and highly theatrical, and I think it has to do with the character's backstory as a member of the nobility whose family, for a time, lost their power and status. And she is truly invested in this idea that she is better than everyone else, so she assumes this kind of very posh British accent, um... And yeah, it's it's very clearly theatrical. But she's also done a pretty serviceable accent in another film called Stardust, which I actually do recommend because it's a fun time. But for this film, this accent, which is very theatrical, seems to be a deliberate choice on Pfeiffer's part that's suited to this character as kind of putting on an act. Okay, because that was one thing, like, I noticed that seemingly got more noticeable. It was so... Yeah, I mean, towards there the end of the, the movie, um, the monologue. Yeah, when she's doing her, you know, villain monologue. Yes, yeah. It gets really pronounced there. Yeah. And actually, I will say this. Um, I actually think this is an interesting part of her characterization is the entitlement. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I, I'm, I'm going to slag the film and I'm going to condemn the film for trying to isolate, you know, bad systemic parts of society that we need to actually have real discussions and deal with yeah to like oh it's a couple bad people who do it deliberately it's like i'm not a racist i'm not in the kkk Ugh. that's basically what they do here but one of the things is because she is you know a white supremacist let's just call her a fucking mm -hmm. white supremacist yep. i'm sorry that's what she is is that 
she feels a natural entitlement to something. It's like, you know, oh, um, I had a castle when I was young, but, you know, those goddamn proles killed my daddy. And then, you know, Aurora has a castle, and she's not using it, and we want that castle is she feels this natural entitlement towards all material resources. And it's not what specifically also she says about what the fairies have is they have everything yeah. we need. Yep, yep. Which is really playing into what I think we're going to see a lot more of. I've been listening to you know some podcasts and stuff lately. Um, but like this idea of uh, like eco-fascism where mm-hmm. th- what we're going to see is going to be less, uh, you know, th- oh, they, you know, less brown people are inferior and more white people have all the resources and uh, you guys can't migrate here away from climate change. So mm-hmm. just fuck yeah. off. Yep. Right? It's this... I think the other thing that kind of coincides with that is this idea that they have the resources, but but white people know how to cultivate yes, them. absolutely. Um, in the proper way, which is a key tenet of eco-fascism and I think is also a big part of her sort of like great replacement theory-esque um, personal platform as a character. Yeah. Um, can we actually talk about Diaval for a second? Because when you say great replacement, one of the things yeah. that pops into my mind is Sam Riley's character. He's human passing... And I'm not quite sure... Well, first of all, I don't think that the film necessarily has any kind of conscious thoughts about what he represents in that. But also, like, I feel like there is a read to be done there with how he's left out of the genocide and then becomes, like, a weird kind of saboteur immediately. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a call for those who are not read as being a target of genocide to become insurgent. Which is... Okay, so pulling this one out of my ass here. In the mainstream um, now. He is not rounded up with the others. So he's mm-hmm. allowed to be part of human society, right? Yes. During the great genocide. So he's, let's say, not taken into the camps. And the immediate mm-hmm. thing that he does is he starts looking for trouble. He starts undermining the ruling party. So basically, like, even if the film decries that racism bad and genocide is bad... Um, there's still the implication that a fae is always a fae and that, you know, there's these kind of, like, racial allegiances, basically. Mm, Maybe. Yeah. You know, the son of a white man and a black woman is a black child. That's how these things work. You know, um, whiteness is constructed in fragility. So when you have this character who everyone sees as, like... He is noble because he is on the right side of history, so to speak. But in the eyes, I think, of the society that the film is portraying, like, he is a traitor and he is a saboteur and he is untrustworthy inherently because of his blood. Yeah, I think that's very common, though, in a lot of narratives fucked. about passing because of the the way that race is talked about throughout American history. Definitely. There's also the thing to mention about Michelle Pfeiffer essentially using the term race traitor multiple times throughout the movie. Mm. Oh, she, she she all but does. Yeah. You know, you're a traitor to your own race. Like, you're a traitor to your own people. She, she, something. She says it multiple times. So it's very clear that that's what the She is two is. steps away from the 14 words. Yeah, very much so. Very, like, very What was the name so. of the fucking kingdom? Oh, I don't even remember. <laughs> It's like Anwal or something, something dumb like that. Something like that. 
Yeah, and Sam Riley's character's narrative is about passing and choosing to side with the oppressed rather than choosing to side with, um, you know, the dominant group in the racial hierarchy, right? That's a very common narrative in stories about passing. And had he have sided the other way, he would have definitely been a very villainous character. So this is really coming to us from literature that is steeped in American yeah. ideas about race. And I don't think it's supposed to be any kind of villainous coding. Indeed, because, no. like, he's on the right side, it's supposed to be noble, but I feel like the frameworks that create that decision lead to some pretty racist shit. <laughs> yeah, and it does because it's based in, as I said, the American racial hierarchy, which was constructed by a group of white supremacists, right? And so this idea in fantasy movies of race as biological is something that is a product of that. So, yeah, that's going to be inherent mm -hmm. to the story, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so yeah. in terms of character, uh, I want to cover Harris Dickinson as Prince Philip for just a second because I want to go somewhere more interesting from there. Okay, thank you. But <laughs> kind of a pretty empty head. Yeah. I feel like he doesn't do anything. Like his whole thing is to like, it, it's kind of weird because the king wakes up at the end of the film. So technically he would still be the head of government. But with the dep deposition of Michelle Pfeiffer, um, he becomes king so to speak. And the, the king is on his way out anyway, so I feel like in a weird metaphorical way, he's the king in waiting. Um, so, like, and again, uh, what it comes down to is, oh, um, there was no way for us to see this coming. I was betrayed. There was nothing we could have done to prevent this. There was no responsibility or culpability placed upon me. Uh, right? Yeah, I see. Beyond that, also, I don't see what the fuck Aurora sees in him. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know either. But then again, in the first movie, it's just kind of like, well, they were fated to meet because of that spindle thing. So that's his entire character. Also, he had a terrible haircut and was played by a different actor. I don't know. In this movie, he seems to be more of like a stand-in for, you know, a sort of positive form of masculinity or at least one that is not complete crap. Uh, I don't really know what he is beyond that, yeah. though, because so, he's very bland. Um, which leads me to the only thing I think that he necessarily does is he looks at Percival, played by David Gassi, and says, no, 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 fair people. You respect them, right? He just has this single line of performative allyship. Yeah. I mean, that and also, you know, using the fairies to make a proposal, which is mm. a weird, dumb scene. I don't care about it. <laughs> But no comment. <laughs> let's talk about David Gassi. Cause um yeah. there's some real casting <laughs> racial politics in making Perci first of all, in making Percival black. Yeah. And second of all, in making Percival black Percival the leader of the genocide corps. I think the purpose there is to probably show that in our contemporary world, people of a variety of backgrounds can be complicit in the rise of authoritarian regimes, which is definitely true. Um, I think there's also an attempt there to change the way that humankind is represented in fantasy films, whereas previously humankind is represented as white, which is a very specific choice. 
Um, here they are definitely representing the humans as being a very diverse group of people, which seems to be important. Um, as to whether it's making the statement that they think it is, I am not sure of that. Yeah, I think sure. I think one thing that's really weird and interesting, and this is maybe, you know, kind of part of the whole like liberal, this is the end of history mindset that they come into this, is Percival is white. In this film, Percival is white, because what I'm seeing here is if you take the broad metaphor of race and magical, fantastical racism in this film, uh -huh. then humans are white people, straight up, is they, they've done the thing where they've expanded whiteness or into humanity to include black people. So, yeah. as, so you've got this whole Irish-Italian thing where he is granted entrance, you know, conditional and temporary and revocable entrance into the supremacy class mm -hmm. so long as he participates in the oppression of others. Yep. And you can see, I, I feel like there is something very deliberate about, because he is one of the few explicitly racist characters outside of Queen Ingrid. Yep. Um... You know, you've got the children who are screaming and fearing when Maleficent and Aurora cross the bridge, whatever. Um, but that is not seen, I think, as a conscious thing. That is more of a prop, and those aren't characters. Where um, you have Lickspittle, played by Warwick Davis, and Percival, who are like, damn fairies can't trust him. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's interesting that the two people who are openly racist are him and Warwick Davis. And I think it's turbo fuck that he's not up for war crimes because, um, yeah, he seemed to be the captain of the genocide squadron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as I said, I'm not exactly sure why it is that a man with dwarfism and a black man in this movie are the ones who are shown to be openly racist. Like, that is certainly not representative of our current reality by any means. Um, so that's just a very interesting thing that this film is perpetuating. Um, in terms of Warwick Davis, though, I did want to talk about him briefly because he is unfortunately fulfilling a lot of these tropes that people with dwarfism have had imposed upon them by Hollywood um, and in a lot of fiction. And that is the idea of the monstrous dwarf. Um, the person with dwarfism who is monstrous in appearance, who does monstrous things, and he is the evil scientist, so that's kind of what he is. Again, this movie likes to fulfill ugly tropes come up with by genocidal people. Yeah, but that's okay, because he's going to invent rockets for us. <sighs> you see at the end there? No. It's... No, no. This... I mean, if anything, you could look at it as being an example of internalized racism because, like, he did, he did, one thing is like that's clearly he... clearly oh, what it's yeah, meant absolutely. to stand in for. Um, you know, he is working for the same person who mutilated him, who took away his wings, and so I understand the metaphor that they are seeking to go for. It's just. Mm -hmm. In the pursuit of this story that they're trying to tell, they are reinscribing a lot of kind of harmful tropes. It's a mess. It's a goddamn mess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do we actually have even have anything? No. Do we actually even have anything left? Uh. Like. I'm there's not sure. There's so much going on and it's all bad and like. <laughs> Did you have eh. something else? Actually, no. I will say one thing. Oh, okay. Um, I am actually, I don't like the marketing of this film. 
Uh, first of all, like Specifics. halfway through the film, I'm like, okay, you know what? The marketing was pretty bad because they they made it look like you know Maleficent was just like pissed off because the lady was being rude to her and not like this deliberate plot. Like, um, but secondly, seeing the burst of red clouds, um, it makes me think of two things. One is this is genocide, and they're sh- they're they're showing this as like a thrilling battle, <sighs> and yeah. I feel like that's. No, this should not be spectacle. This should not be excitement. And this should not be, like, marketed as such. But secondly, there's, like, this kind of visual parallel, I think, maybe to, like, um, the battle in The Last Jedi, for example, where you've got these kind of red flares as this very kind of, like, chaste, safe, and nonviolent representation of, like, explosive energy and, like, you know, banners and... rushes and stuff and so like first of all you've got that same like visual kind of through line that we're seeing through marketing there but mostly it's just like wow y'all just um yeah y'all just threw the fucking agent orange in there and it's great yeah um yeah i mean because the image is visually arresting right so the main thought there is that it's a good image for advertising like i don't think this question of what does it mean to take an image from a scene of an ongoing genocide and if i don't think that even registered to them because the point of the advertising image is how to get butts in seats right it's how to get people interested oh i want to go and see angelina jolie in a sky fight right that's what that image communicates this is the thing with disney their politics is the politics of what the market will bear Um, it's also about being very risk averse. And I think it would have been an extremely risky choice in their view to have a movie with a bunch of characters who commit uh, a genocide and then have those characters be tried for committing that genocide and maybe convicted or sentenced, right? I think that would have lost them several of their major regions that they market films to. This film would have been banned, potentially. And I think that it also would have caused um, a lot of stirring here in the U.S. in terms of people talking about whether this was a political statement about the Trump administration and a lot of its policies with um, Border Patrol and ICE. So I think that Disney made this choice to be risk averse, uh, essentially to make the most money that they possibly could have. They were never going to make a substantive statement about what it means to hold people to account for committing genocide. Uh, That literally would have gotten this film banned in several of their major marketing regions, so... And you and I have talked about this before with Ready Player One. This is what the film industry looks like today this is how it shapes some of the choices that people make creatively um, and constrains some of those choices so i think that's part of what we got i don't think that's the entire reason why the film is so poorly written like i think this is bad and morally bankrupt and that could be definitely a product of some really bad writing Um, and some really thoughtless, careless, heartless writing. (sighs) 
God. Yeah. This movie made me mad. And the more I thought about it, the more mad I got. And I knew you would be mad. And the more we talked about it, the more mad I got. So that's... Annie, is there anything else that we want to talk about in this? Because I think I'm done. I think I'm tired. <laughs> oh, God. And this is going to be a short one, too. Um, so let's clarify. Racism is bad. And pretending that racism is this easily solvable problem is also bad. We have a racist system and we got to fucking deal with it. We do. And I think one of the methods that we use to deal with that, particularly with a system that is heavily resistant to any sort of critique of itself um, or attempts to change it, is to reply back. Which is why I always encourage people, use your social media to have conversations about films when you see things that you don't like. Um, people do watch social media. Studio heads do watch social media. They watch critical reviews to see how to improve their product, if you will. That being said, we also need to support people who have been excluded from the studio system because it is so business model-y. So please support people on Kickstarter and Patreon who are making films that otherwise would not be made in the studio system because the system is not working for us. There we go. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, this has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I have been your host and very sad anti-racist girl, Jess. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jessica on Main. You can find us on Twitter at Movie Morgue Cast. And uh, Annie... Well, people can come and find me on Twitter at, at Annie Producer, or you can look me up as Annie the Producer on Twitter. Um, so you can come find me there. As always, I kind of lurk on the Discord. Um, so yeah, you might see me there. Come chat with us. Oh, new Twitter. I did not know about this. This is yes, a surprise for me. A brand new Anyways, um, if you guys like what we do, first of all, thank you for listening. We love you all, each and every one of you. And if you want to help us out, Tell a friend, talk to us on Twitter, all that good stuff. And if you want to take it a step further and be real special, real, just real special, um, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Jessica on Main. No spaces. And uh, that helps us keep the lights on and keep us hosted on the internet for you to listen to. But thank you guys so much. Um, we love you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.